There is no growth in comfort and no comfort in growth. Business today typically values and promotes leaders for their subject expertise. Leaders who have command of the details and execute based on knowledge and experience are highly respected. However, to grow as a leader, you have to get out of your comfort zone. That means learning to lead without just being the expert. Learn to gain the trust and respect of a team that might know more than you do. Get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information. Develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. I'm Wanda Wallace. Today, we're going to talk about the mind. Now, all of us have a lot of assumptions about how our minds actually work. Whether that involves making a decision, defining a sense of purpose, understanding our biases, or remembering the past for that matter. But we don't often stop and question our underlying assumptions. So are our minds really constructing meaning as we go, or is meaning something we uncover from the subconscious? And how does all of that matter for leading people? So that's the subject for today. Nick Chatter is my guest. He's a professor of behavioral science at Warwick Business School, and he founded the behavioral science group there, which is the largest of its kind in Europe. He's also a co-founder of a research consultancy, Decision Technology, and he advises the United Kingdom's behavioral insights team and was scientist in residence on the BBC Radio 4 series, The Human Zoo. Among a host of other things, Nick has a new book called The Mind is Flat. I think you're going to find this a rather fascinating conversation and a good one to question what it is we do when we're leading and evaluating and deciding what to do with people. So, Nick, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. It's, it's great to be on. Absolutely. Delighted to have you here. So, you know, the title of the book, The Mind is Flat. You have a view about that. That's the book of view, uh, the book title. But what do you mean, the mind is flat? Yes, I mean it's a it's a good question because it's a it's something that could, and I think wrongly, it could make one think that the mind is shallow, or people are shallow, or we're you know we're less um, profound, remarkable creatures than we imagine. And I think that's not what I want to suggest at all. I think we're astonishing, amazing, um, unique beings, each of us. But what's amazing and astonishing about us is our astounding creative improvisational abilities. So I think the, the wonder of human intelligence is the ability to continually create stories, new understandings, um, new interpretations of what's happening to us, what we're doing, um, what our life is about, and to use those to, to engage with what, we, um, what we're going to do next. But uh, what we tend to think is that when we're making up those stories, when we're being so creative, we're actually not making being creative at all. We're simply reporting or trying to report the contents or the inner workings of our mind. So I want to suggest that, in fact, we have essentially no access whatever to the inner workings of our minds. We have absolutely no uh, access to anything other than the conscious flow of experience. And that conscious flow of experience is the outcome of all this creative improvisation. So it's not that beneath the conscious thoughts we have, there are other thoughts, sort of a bit like the conscious ones, but deep and mysterious and hidden, and that occasionally we fish out some of those deep, mysterious beliefs, desires, motives, and so on. Um, I think that's really the wrong, wrong idea. It's more that the conscious stream of thought is a, a continual flow of new creative, creative uh, of insights, and each one built and based on, on the past experience, past insights we've had. So we're continually creating, swimming, improvising, 
um, in sort of fast moving and changing currents rather than being static creatures with a, as it were, a giant library of answers to all the questions that, uh, about what our beliefs are, what our desires are, what our motives are, and essentially who we are. It's not a library, it's a process. Okay, so not a library, a process. That's an interesting one. So if I go way back to my graduate school days, my PhD school days, one of the things that we were studying at the time in the lab had to do with how accurate your memory was for events in your life. Mm. And what is astounding is that on occasion, those events can be quite accurate, and on other occasions, they can be dramatically inaccurate. So this notion that we're recreating our experience and retelling that experience and therefore in that process, in that creative process, you know, it's subject to flaws. Is that what you mean? Well, it's certainly part of the story. I think that's right. So if we're, um, one of the things we can do is, is to try to report what, what, what our beliefs are about the world, what our values are, what our motives are. But, but one of the most important things we do is just try and tell the story of our lives, as it were, as factually as we can. Just what has happened to me? Mm-hmm. What, you know, what happened yesterday? What happened last year? Um, you know, how did I get started in, in psychology? How did I meet a particular person? And as you say, our memories, even our memories for things which are really ought to be, you'd imagine, they ought to be the kind of thing in a mental library. They ought to be fairly stable, static um, and, and easily reportable, but actually, as, exactly as you say, they they seem to be both quite unstable. So often we are we are um, wrong about things that we feel very sure about, but the way they're unstable is extremely interesting. Um, so I mean, a, cl- a classic um, psychological demonstration of this um, is if you give people a, an image, say a simple um, say a simple picture of a bicycle, uh, and they have to copy it and uh, remember, so we have to look at the image and then remember it for a while and then write, um, copy it out and then do that again and again and again with different people. So my image, my copied image goes to you and then you remember it for a minute or two or perhaps a day and you, copy, you, write, you, you uh, draw it and then you hand it to the next person. Then what you find is those images um, gradually change as you'd expect, but they change from being something like a bicycle to a pair of spectacles or a pair of spectacles to a bicycle. They have, um, they don't just meander aimlessly about, what we're trying to do is to take a pattern um, and work out what the interpretation of that pattern is. And sometimes we get the wrong interpretation. Something that we uh, actually was a picture of two circles because of the wheels of a bicycle suddenly becomes two circles as a, as a pair of spectacles. But always we're imposing meaning. We're trying to find meaning. Now, of course, that applies in our own memories too. So we can often look back um, retrospectively about things that happened and misunderstand or misperceive, for example, what caused what or who exactly, um, who exactly was at the present at a particular event. So we create a new interpretation, a story that makes perfectly good sense. It isn't necessarily the right one. But, of course, having created that interpretation, that becomes a new memory. And this is where we get into difficulty um, because we've now um, wondered, now what happened then? I then invent, invent a story. Perhaps I get it wrong, as it were. I get the, the spectacles instead of the bicycle. Um, but now I've got it wrong. I think, yeah, that's right. Now that's a new memory now because I'm remembering. That's what happened. When I think about it, as it were, tomorrow, then the, um, my mistake comes to mind. But that feels like memory of the real thing. And, of course, if I continue, continually review that memory, it can become very embedded. I can become very, very sure. Um, so the studies where people um, are queried about their diaries are very revealing in this regard because people are extraordinarily right. certain about all sorts of things in their lives, often completely wrongly. Okay. Well, 
some of my published research back in way too many years ago for me to even give a date on air is had to do with oral traditions and how oral traditions were passed down generation to generation. And it turns out that there are structures within the oral traditions that make them stable. And the structures will be preserved, but everything around the structure can change. And it's that same sense of I have an interpretation around the story or event that I'm telling um, and some things will anchor it, but the other things will cause it to, to vary quite widely. So let's go back to this whole notion about conscious awareness, because you were talking about this mm. before, about being able to dip into our consciousness and see what it is that we think and, you know, pull out, mine out different pieces of information. So you think it's not a discovery or an uncovering process, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So, so for example, if you if you ask me, um, suppose you you have a choice of possible drinks. You have tea, tea and coffee, and um, being British, I'm quite likely to think, oh, I'll have tea because tea's the kind of thing we drink. Um, now you might so you might say, but why why tea? To which I might say, oh well, I, I guess I guess I prefer tea or I prefer tea at this time of day. And you might say, well, why do you prefer tea at this time of day? And I will tell you a story about that. I'll say, well, I, it somehow just seems a bit strong to have something as potent as coffee. You know, it's early morning or whatever it is, or I'm just about to go to bed. So I'll tell you a story about that. And you might say, yeah, but why do you care? And I'll say, oh well, I want to sleep well or I want to be I want to be alive and um, woken up or whatever whatever the the situation. So. It's very it's a natural interpretation of what's going on, but the wrong one, I think. But our intuitive interpretation is, I have these reasons, um, and you're asking me what they are, and I, I look inside my head, and I think, ah, there's the reason. I will uh, give it. And if you ask me uh, to explain that reason, I'll say, well, funnily enough, I've got a reason for that too. And however many, many questions you ask me, more answers keep tumbling out. Now, the, um, the, 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 the one difficulty with this, this viewpoint, perhaps there are two, one difficulty with this viewpoint is it involves the uh, thought that we have an awfully large store of um, yeah. reasons, beliefs, desires, motives, which are all just waiting in there to be, to be retrieved. Um, because obviously the, the number of questions and the number of justifications you could ask for is really big. Um, so it seems like it's strange that I'm somehow ready for them all. Um, and the other difficulty is if you ask me to explain the same aspect of my behavior at different moments or in slightly different ways or you, know, you just rephrase the question in a different, different form. Uh, as psychologists are continually fond of showing, ask the same question in a slightly different way and you get a different answer. And usually the answers just don't fit together. They don't really make sense. Um, so, you can, so we're sort of inconsistent and also there are just too many things um, that we can, you can ask me that, they could, that all the answers could somehow be preformed. So I think the alternative perspective is that we're simply improvising. So it's that I'm, I haven't really got a reason until I think of it. And if you want me to justify that reason, I'll think of another reason for that too. So it's a bit like, if imagine you're playing a, you're doing improvisational theater and um, you're playing the role of a, of a character who's just chosen one drink or another and you, as the other character, decide you know, to, to query them about why do they always drink tea at this time in the morning. And me, in character, I will, will generate an answer. It's not the real answer because I'm just playing a character, but I, I, I can generate an answer. And I can generate answers to any question when I'm playing you know, a character in a, in a, in a, in a theater improvisation. And the, the illusion is thinking that when I'm playing myself, as it were, I'm doing something different because I'm not, I'm not making it up then. I'm looking it up in my sort of giant inner library. But I don't think we need to postulate the inner library. We're, um, we're always improvisers, and we're so fantastically good at it 
that we don't really think we're doing it. <laughs> that is a sort of scary for human behavior, if I stop to think about it. The notion that I'm constantly improvising and that what I say is a reason or a justification or explanation or anything today, an opinion, a belief for that matter today, might well not be the same tomorrow. Yeah, I think it is a bit scary, but there are lots of um, experimental demonstrations that indicate that this is, this is the case. So I'll just, just um, touch on one or two. So one particularly um, nice uh, classic example, going back to the uh, 70s, I think, this is work of Michael Gazzaniga, a sort of psychologist and neuroscientist, who did a lot of very interesting work on people who've had the, um, the corpus callosum, the, um, the, the, the uh, fibers between the two hemispheres of the brain, uh, cut, and usually to treat severe epilepsy. And so the, for them, the left and right halves of the brain can't talk to each other. Now then, by, depending on where you, the way you ask a question, whether you sort of present a question in the left or the right visual field, you can communicate directly with the left or ha- right half of the brain. And also, by getting people to answer questions with their left or right hands, you can get an answer which has got to be driven by the left or right um, uh, half of the brain. So the trick is right. that you, you have a, a brain which is split in two. People can get along amazingly in daily life remarkably normally. Um, even though this would seem like it ought to be awfully disruptive. But the, the clever trick he's going to use is to ask questions and get responses from the different halves of the brain uh, it's selectively. Now then the trick, which is a remarkable thing, is to ask the, um, a question, of, to ask the right half of the brain to do something or give it a question. And the right half of the brain will set off and respond in fact, using the left hand, because the right brain is, has crossover wiring. Um, so the right brain responds to the question. And then you ask the left brain, well, um, you know, why, is it, why, did, why did you do that? Why did your, um, why, why did your hand just pick, up, pick that particular um, uh, sort of card from the table? And the trouble is the left brain has no clue. It can't possibly have a clue because the right brain made a decision. The left brain is, is, is sitting, as it were, utterly mystified. But it will still cook up a story. So it'll perfectly fluently generate a story, and it'll be a just as rapid, fluent, convincing sounding uh, as, as the story about the, when the left brain's explaining its own actions. And often it will be 100% wrong, because the clever, um, clever experiment of Michael Kazanaga will have made some very subtle um, create some subtle problem for the right for the right half of the brain, and the, the left hand has, half of the brain has no idea what's going on. But it cooks up an answer which seems completely reasonable. Now that's very interesting. The, the left hemisphere of the brain is the one that is primarily, uh, not exclusively, but primarily involved with language. So Gazzaniga's idea is that the left half of the brain is essentially an interpreter, a creative interpreter, which watches your behaviour and thinks, "Hmm, what am I doing here?" Ah, my hand's heading towards a glass. I must be wanting some water. But it does that irrespective of whether it has any access whatever to the origins of that action. And when, it's, when the left hand of the half of the brain is um, trying to explain the right half of the brain's actions, it has no clue at all. It might as well be trying to explain the actions of a third person completely. But it does it happily. There's no sense of disconnect. There's no sense of, well, I'm guessing on this one, but no, out comes the answer. And I think the, 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 the conclusion, or a, you know, a natural conclusion to draw from that, and there are many other pieces of research as well, but a, a natural conclusion to draw is, do you know that we're always doing that? The left half of the brain, the language centers of the brain, are always observing our behavior and generating stories about them, rationalizing, essentially. 
So observing what we do, generating stories, and interpreting, okay? Yeah, yeah. So that would mean that our ability to improvise music or improvise in theater is not the remarkable thing. Actually, the remarkable thing is that we ever even remember anything accurate in the first place, by if I listen to your story. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a very nice way of putting it. Um, I, think, I think the thing that is... Um, it, it, yes, indeed, it's the, in, in a way, it's, it would be, according to the sort of normal story, the intuitive story, that there's me, my, 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 my memories, my beliefs, my desires, my, you know, all my personalities, as it were, written down in a concrete form, it would seem miraculous that I could suddenly pretend to be somebody else or play a game in which I, you know, I, 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 I'm going to inhabit a different character. Um, that would seem amazing because I've somehow got to put aside all of this me stuff and somehow take on... The, um, all those preformed thoughts of somebody else, and how could I do that? But from an improvisational point of view, exactly as you say, the impressive thing about daily life is that we're so, so much in character, we're as consistent as we are, and it's hard. Um, it's because of continual struggle for us, I think, and, and um, not in a negative way, but it's just the business of life is trying to be a coherent character, thinking, hmm, this seems like a good reason to do something. seems like a good reason to eat this cake because I feel kind of hungry and I look like the look of it. But then I think, ah, but hang on, there's another uh, part of my character which I seem to remember talking this morning about how I wanted to cut down on um, sweet snacks. So I've got to do something about this. So either I give in or maybe I, you know, I decide not to. But that's my continual challenge as a human being is to try to be um, as coherent a character as I can, to tell stories that make as much sense of my life as possible. Okay. <laughs> fascinating to think about this, Nick. Absolutely fascinating, because I think you're right. We try to believe that we're consistent, um, coherent, we think the same, we have the same values, we have the same interpretations, we have a lot of accuracy, both in our visual perception and our sensory perception and our memories, and I am who I am, and that is who I always show up and how I always show up. But your argument is it isn't nearly that simple. That we go about like generating experiences and generating stories and interpreting those stories and that they vary. And so that the natural part is not as coherent as we'd like to believe. Yeah, that was exactly right. I think the coherence is something we're continually striving towards and, and it's very difficult. Um, so, I mean, there's a different line of um, engagement with these issues is thinking about the coherence of um, our, our thoughts about the, the world around us. Um, and one of the mm-hmm. things that, that psychologists have, have had a great fun studying is, thing, just about any example will do, but a particularly nice example is uh, people's understanding of the physical world of everyday objects. Mm-hmm. So most of us have a pretty good sense of understanding electricity kind of goes along wires and powers things and so on. Um, but you only have to ask the very simplest question about electricity for us to suddenly think, huh, this is it's a real mystery. I don't understand this thing at all. Um, so one finds was if you ask people questions like, um, you know, do you think a little electricity leaks out of the plug socket? Just a little bit. You know, air is not a very good conductor, but presumably a little bit leaks out. Or does it? I mean, you know, suddenly one's not too sure. And then um, you know, where does he, how, what's, how, what's the actual wiring of your house? Is, that, is it kind of a big circuit? And like, how do the wires, you know, and how many wires are there in your plug? I mean, it's all, and how do they like link together? It's all very, very puzzling. And you know, almost everything is like this. I mean, another great example is the, the air conditioner. Um, people have a strong sense. If you ask people how an air conditioner works, they think, well, I probably understand that pretty well. I see them every day can't be that hard 
Um, they kind of suck in air and they kind of cool it somehow. And then again, the normal, as you, as, 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 as ever, as you start to ponder this, you realize, yeah, cooling stuff. How does that happen? Um, making something hot, I can sort of see that, but making it cooler, it's all very baffling. Now, you know, if you, if you happen to be a, an engineer with the right background, you can explain these things. But what's fascinating is that almost all of us, for almost everything we think about, we don't really understand it. it and so we can, we have inconsistent, partial, sketchy, vague ideas of how it works. And, and that includes other people, of course, and ourselves. Um, and yet, the miraculous um, sophistication and cleverness of our brains is that we can cope in a world where we don't understand things. Um, we, don't, we, we don't have consistent, fully worked out uh, understanding of the things around us, um, the people around us, our own motives, and yet we cope because we can continually conjure up good enough explanations which sort of get us by moment to moment. But of course, that's yeah. quite the alarming thought when we realize it's Huh. So actually, when I think, you know, what's the plan for my life? Um, as soon as I start to ask myself questions about it, I realize hmm, it's, it's not as clear as I thought. Or what are my underlying core values? Or any, any question at all. Things that one feels we ought to have a really good answer to, none of us do. Or rather, we have many answers, but they're not really coherent ones. And if you ask me on different moments and different days, you'll get slightly different answers. We certainly see that all the time. All right, Nick. So let me just want to take a break here. If I try to summarize all of this one, the notion is that we are constantly improvising. We are experiencing things. We're interpreting it. We're telling stories about it. And we try to make a coherent story in the moment almost. And it's not that it's um, unintentional. It's not that it's intentionally incoherent, but it can turn out to be incoherent. And the struggle is to try to create coherence, that we are constantly improvising our interpretations. I think, I think I've gotten that one straight for you. All right, so we're going to take a break. Yeah, what I want to come back is to say, what does that mean in terms of leadership? And particularly some hot topics at the moment, like finding purpose or unconscious bias, or leading and deciding on teams. So my guest today is Nick Chatter. The book, if you're interested, is called The Mind is Flat, and we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Are you finding your frequency? 
It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. I'm with Nick Chatter, and we've been talking about Nick's new book, The Mind is Flat. With the notion that what happens for all of us in the world, we do not have this large library of thoughts and ideas and values and beliefs stored in our brain that we just access. Instead, what all of us are doing every day, all the time, is improvising what we believe, what we think, what we feel, why we do things. That means that it is we have experiences, we tell stories about the meaning of those experiences, we interpret those experiences. And therefore, it's not as veridical as we might like to believe it is. Now, if that's the notion about how our mind really, truly works behind the scenes, and there's a lot of evidence to support it, let's talk now about the implications for leadership. So let's focus, Nick, first on this whole notion of unconscious bias. It's been really popular in the diversity inclusion world, and again, the notion that I um, have a bias in how I evaluate other people based on my own preferences, and it's largely unconscious. So what's your view on that one? Well, I think essentially uh, all our, our judgments and decisions are, in a, re- in a real sense, I think they're all unconscious. So the, the unconsciousness isn't the, isn't the surprising thing about biases. Uh, so, uh, so if it's the case that um, when I explain my decisions, I'm not actually reading off the, uh, the true causes from my behavior. I'm, I'm thinking, I'm interpreting, I'm making a story up about, well, why would I, why would I have done that? Um, so you know, the actual real processes, the actual generator, generator machinery behind a decision is always unconscious to us. So, so in some sense, you know, from that perspective, we're always um, in the play of unconscious forces just because... Um, we have very little understanding of the operations of our own brains. Now, it's not to say, of course, that um, that, that uh, unconscious biases aren't especially important, because clearly um, some of the factors that may be determining our decisions may be ones that we will actively deny or would actively wish to uh, dissociate ourselves with from. So, so it certainly can be true that we could um, tell a story about why we're making a decision, and that story may 
uh, and fit very poorly with the decisions we're actually making. So we might make hiring decisions and say, oh, I treat men and women exactly the same. And then, um, but on the other hand, an analysis of the people I hire might reveal perhaps you don't. Um, and that might, you know, that might look like unconscious bias, but I think it's not so much that I would, um, that, that, that it's, uh, it's the case that I somehow ought to know the origins of my own, um, my own decisions. It's always a matter of speculation. Um, and uh, we're always unconscious of it. Now, that's not also not to say that we can't deliberately, um, in some cases, um, uh, be misleading. I mean, there are situations where I can think to myself, hmm, well, I don't really like people uh, like that, and I don't really want them, uh, but I can't say that. And I think you know, that's, a, that's a different thing, because that's a case where I have a story, but it's not a public accept, publicly acceptable story, so I change my story. But in all of those cases, we're not actually ever able to, as it were, look inside the machinery of our own minds. That's a fascinating concept, and it certainly explains a lot of things that I see in decisions in corporate life. And let me give you an example. You know, often we're evaluating talent in some form or another, and we're making a judgment. Is this person ready for promotion? Do they deserve this particular job? Are they ranked at the top of the group or in the middle of the group or in the bottom of the group? And if you listen to the explanations that people give for why this person should be ranked a two rather than a one, um, it, they're not always coherent, one. Two, they're very rarely based on solid facts. They're based on impression. And often the facts around the case can be quite inaccurate. And this would say, we can't even access what it was in my decision. Don't be your argument. I can't really even know why I think this is a person who's a two and not a one. But I will tell you a story about it that makes it sound right. Yeah, I think, that, uh, I think that's right. And I think uh, uh, an, another interesting element of that is often we agree collectively what the stories are. So uh, I once did a, a project with a, a large financial consultancy split between the U.S. and the, U, uh, the U.K., and the, um, the people in this consultancy spent a very great deal of time evaluating their staff and also a great deal of time on uh, deciding who to hire. And they had a very strong sense of the kind of people we want in our business and what they need to be good at. Mm-hmm. Now, it turned out that um, there were two very interesting results in our study, uh, which we, we were never able to publish because uh, it's a commercial uh, study. Um, but uh, the one, one result was that the relationship between um, the the, the, the uh, qualities that the interviewers were looking for and actual performance was pretty much nil. So although people had a strong sense of, yeah, that's the kind of person we want to hire, they have these properties, actually the, um, the, 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 those, the people they hired uh, who, who scored really highly, who are really top hires, did no better than the rest of them. Uh, there seemed to be like no discrimination in there at all. But the other thing is that um, once people have settled into the organization, people uh, around them really agreed about who the good people were and who the less good people were. So actually we had people put, um, put each other into bins of you know, the top, top fifth, um, second top, then third top, and basically groups of five from one to five. And there was really high agreement. Now, I'm not necessarily too sure that those agreements reflected uh, some kind of deep underlying reality. They may be that... Um, you know, the organizations and groups of people create stories and agree, yeah, that's the right story, that's a really good person. And when they make a mistake, well, they tried their best and they really made really, a really good stab. And there's somebody else who we have decided is a bad person. This can sometimes happen. I'm not, and, of course, that might create a kind of false consensus. But nonetheless, I think it's very interesting that um, within that organization, and I think within all organizations, we tend to have a sense of, yes, 
um, these are the good people, these are the less good people. Maybe that often has some validity. Um, but if we're asked, and why do you think that? We'll often give a story which, as with hiring decisions, will actually be completely wrong. We'll say, ah, oh, yes, they're fantastically analytical. They have tons and tons of mathematical background or whatever we think we're, um, we're actually uh, in business to be good at. But in reality, that's, yeah, and we'll hire people on that basis, but it's not actually what matters at all. Um, we're, we're, making up, we're making up a story about what kind of uh, people we want, probably entirely retrospectively. <laughs> that would explain in some ways why we're only 50%. We might as well flip a coin in promoting people in terms of how effective we are at deciding who's going to be good at the job in the promotion. And they've known that for ages. Yeah. Boy, this is an interesting one that would say, forget the unconscious bias. We don't actually even know what it is that we're choosing to hire people, and it isn't a very good predictor of whatever it is that we're doing. We can't access what it is that we're re- relating to. So, okay, Nick, if I promote you to a management consultant, what would you advise managers to do if this is how our brains work? Well, I think that one thing that is worth doing is trying to pay attention to whatever objective information one does have. And, and often that's, that's not a lot. Um, and it's remarkable, actually, how strong our impressions are. I think, as you were pointing out earlier, how strong our um, senses are of uh, what's good, what's bad, who's good, who's bad, based on relatively thin data. But trying to, to promote that thin data. So, it, so in the, the kind of study that I was talking about before, um, it often turns out that quite objective things are quite good predictors, actually. Objective known things... Um, uh, about, for example, people's um, e- educational background or um, some, sometimes aptitude tests, although aptitude tests have their, have their limits, depends on the, on the role. But there are sometimes bits of objective information that can be useful. Um, and I think the other thing is uh, trying to get opinions from a variety of sources. Um, so one of the dangers we have is, is, is thinking, and this is a classic sort of er- error we all make, we been in a, in a role for a long time, we think, well, well, given my experience, I've been doing this for such a long time, I'm really good at picking out the, 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 the best people to promote. And in fact, uh, certainly in the, the study I mentioned earlier, the, uh, the CEO of the company uh, also, as a matter of honor, did actually do a lot of the interviewing um, and just along, alongside everybody else of the, of the new hires. And he was just as poor at predicting who was going to be a good hire as everybody else. But of course, he was super confident. And I suspect he'd be just as poor at working out who to promote as everybody else is. Um, but because he's the CEO, he thinks, well, I, I, A, I'm supposed to have good judgment because that's what I'm here to do. And B, I've got all this experience. And I think those things are not things to be trusted. I think we should all be very interested in perspectives um, from other people, not necessarily, and possibly with, with starting points different from our own. Um, so, yes, I think be distrustful of one's judgment. Try to just get a, a, a sense of what opinions and evidence you have from people as, who are as different from you in their starting point as possible. And if you have any objective facts to hang on to, don't throw them away. <laughs> okay. All right. And then to get some facts. All right. Yeah. Fair yeah. enough. Okay. I think I... Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Let's go on to another hot topic, which is this whole notion of purpose. 
And yes. the people, you know, it's been a hot topic that's going on, and there's sort of two schools of thought that go around purpose. One says your purpose is in there. It's just a matter of your uncovering it and deciding it and seeing it. It's always been a part of you, and you just have to let it unfold. And the other school of thought is very much, if no, it's a constructive process. It takes you a while to know what your sense of purpose is, and you have to work at it. You have to think about it, and you have to try some things, and eventually, if you work at it hard enough, you will figure out what what gives you meaning in life. I have a distinct opinion. You're going to say neither is right. So what's your view about this notion of purpose? Well, I certainly lean towards the second um, perspective uh, of the two. Um, But I think think thinking, uh, the the reason I would would disagree with both, so your intuition is is correct, is that I think viewing the... um, the, the, the coherence of a life as given by, as it were, a sort of central underlying purpose is, is, is a mistake. Um, so it's, it, you know, our, our lives have many purposes, um, and the, you know, the, the, the challenge we face in, in navigating our lives is, is reconciling all those different purposes. So we have you know, sort of multiple purposes in, you know, our, in, in our, our jobs, many different tasks to do, many different people to please, many different uh, things, projects we want to push forward. We have endless um, purposes in our, our private lives, all the you know, sort of thing, from, from things like um, maintaining the home and garden to hobbies and uh, enormous richness of things with interactions with, with children and parents and friends and so on. So this vast number of purposes and, and challenges, it creates a sort of vast um, set of, of choices for us, and we, we can't successfully uh, fulfill all of these purposes simultaneously. We have to choose, we have to prioritize, we have to somehow knit some of these together to, 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 into larger units to, to, to try and achieve as much as we can. Now, we're always going to be pulled in many directions because there's always many, many forces acting on us. And I think one mistake is thinking, I, I guess there must be some one single thing, if only I could work out what it was, which would organize everything. That would just give me the sort of lodestar. If I headed towards that, all this other stuff would, would, would fall into place. And I think that's, that's the wrong way to think. It's not that there's this one deep purpose from which the others um, fall. It's more that we always have many purposes, and our challenge as, as human beings is to, is to manage this complexity and make it as cohesive as we can. So I suppose I'd think of purpose as uh, something you only... St- you know, purposes are multifarious, they're everywhere. Um, I don't think of it as some, something that um, is a, a kind of uh, extremely hard thing to achieve and uh, any kind of sense of purpose at all is, 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 uh, is to be somehow celebrated. I think life is full of many purposes and the challenge is to, is to coherently um, draw them together, knit them together, prioritize. That's what we're doing, I think. We're thinking, you know, what's the, what am I tr- doing with my life? We're not... Um, worrying about um, you know, why do I engage in you know, like you know, sports activities or chatting with friends? We're thinking, you know, how, how does it all fit together? That's the that's the challenge we face, and I think that's just a you know, it's a, like an endlessly complex jigsaw, and the pieces are too numerous, and the puzzle keeps changing. And it's yeah, so it's a challenge we're never going to quite solve. So I think I think however hard we try, we shouldn't think it's frustrating. I still haven't found this thing. Uh, that that one thing is never going to be found. Um, but probably life can become a bit more cohesive, a bit more organized if we ponder it more. As I think about this and I think about the examples that I've heard and some of the people that I've talked to around their own sense of purpose and how that's made, uh, I think what people are looking for is a thread to tell 
that is makes coherence out of all the complexity that's in their lives and gives them sort of a line of sight. And it's, yeah. it's almost yeah. as if there's a priority setting mechanism, a coherence mechanism that we're looking for. And when I can tell the story of that in a way that makes sense to me, that feels reasonably coherent to me, I feel more, shall I say, satisfied because I have yeah. a story. Yes. So maybe it is the ability to construct right. the story yeah. that matters more than anything else. And it almost doesn't matter what the purpose is, so long as you can construct a story. And when that no longer works, change it. I think, I think that's right. And I think the, um, the, the story is always going to be partial. So it's never... There's a sense we can sometimes have that now it all makes sense. This is the, this is the story that organizes everything. It's always... It's always actually a bit of a fiction because there are many aspects of one's life which don't really fit with the story particularly. They're, they're just sort of um, they're other important things, other uh, if, aspects of your life which, which you know, the, the, for example, the, the relationship between your personal life and work life, you know, it's quite likely that, there are, that the organizing principles in those are, are somewhat different, not necessarily totally different. There may be some you know, general aim of you know, making the world a better place or... You know, serving people around you, or there may be certain broad goals which which cut across those. But but you know, the details, the the, the the big story is never going to capture all the details or all the specifics. But I think it's absolutely true that having, as it were, um, a useful summary overview, a sense of you know trying to explain is this sort of elevator pitch oneself in a way. Um, you know, who who am I? What am I? Why am I here? Um, none of us can really answer that question. It can it, it, be too complex for that. There's no there's no sort of uh, uh, one minute answer to that question. But having a, a slightly better elevator pitch to oneself is, I think, it is reassuring and satisfying. And actually, also helps one, as as you were uh, indicating before, it helps one prioritize and think about the next step. So it's not a purely retrospective process. Um, you know, the more one uh, sees the world in a particular way, see one, sees, sees one's life in a particular way, the more one thinks, I should be doing more of this and a little bit less of that and so on. Okay. Makes a ton of sense to me. I've always believed, I've believed for a long time that we are hardwired in some ways to tell stories because we remember stories. Stories mm-hmm. carry meaning. They carry emotion. They carry the richness of life. And Every society everywhere tells stories, and the stories are what conveys the real meaning, the sense of the community, the whole stuff. And so your argument is largely that what we are is a storytelling machine, that what our brain does is tell us yes. a bunch of stories. Have I overstated it? No, I think, I think that's exactly right, actually. Um, and I think we really are. Um, we're, much, we're much more... Um, innovative, creative storytellers than we tend to imagine. So many people will think, well, I can't be like that because I'm, I've just got no imagination or I'm just not a creative type. You know, I just have a life and I just remember it and I just say, well, this is me, this is my life. And I think that's really wrong, actually. Um, I think all of us actually, whether we know it or not, are creating order out of a degree of chaos and complexity and uh, sifting the enormous number of things that happen to a person and turning them into a, a narrative. That is something that is a really, really remarkable creative, creative act. Um, and, we're, and we all do that all the time, and it's the, it's the way we under, understand ourselves. Now, of course, we can do that. We can tell stories which um, are productive, constructive, helpful stories that help us navigate the future, and we can tell stories which are unhelpful to us. For example, stories in which we you know, feel victimized by the world or we feel um, hopeless failures who will never, never amount to anything. Or you know, There are stories which are not um, productive, and it may be very important to 
um, to try to create better stories. Um, but I think so. I think stories matter. But I think yeah, we're all we're all in the grip of stories. None, none of us are, as it were, um, uh, sort of directly in contact with the unvarnished unvarnished facts of reality. Okay. If you um, look at the examples of people who have gone through traumatic events, like having lost limbs or you know just some some yeah. horrible events, as well as some personal failures and setbacks. What you find is the people who are resilient, who are the most successful, are the ones who integrate that event into the story they tell about themselves, and they integrate it into a positive way in terms of lessons learned or the benefit to that achieved or the people that I've met as a result of this or what I now know that I didn't know before or some version. But the secret seems to be the mm. integration of the event into a coherent story. And that puts us right back to your main theme. Yeah, I think that is a, that's absolutely right, and it's a very interesting, interesting phenomenon. Because, of course, as, as you know, many of the people who have those experience will, experiences will take what really can be, you know, from an external point of view, almost wholly bad things that you would ne- never wish on anybody. But they may themselves begun, begin to see them as um, sort of points of which started... Um, the positive changes in their life. They may see themselves as growing as people in having to face adversity and difficulty, uh, even though they might wish in some sense that it had never happened, but also they've, 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 they've changed. They've, um, they've, been, um, they, yeah, they, they've, they've been somehow the master rather than the subject of this, um, of the, of this adversity. And I do think that's, that is very important. It, it, I think a, a, a difficult story for any of us to cope with is a story in which everything's going along happily and then something external and bad and horrible happens. Either it's our fault or somebody else's fault. And that's kind of it. It's, and then we struggle on, um, but we're kind of damaged. Um, that's a very, very difficult story to, to, to cope with. I think a story which is much, actually much more real, uh, a real story of, um, or a better story of, of, of what actually represents people's experience is that we come through difficulties and we react to them and we try and cope with them and that changes who we are. So rather than being a sort of passive victim whose life was fine but it's now been disturbed by this horrible external event, trying to see, seeing that as part of the tapestry, it doesn't make the external event, uh, whatever it was, less horrible, um, but it, it's, it's a much... Um, it, it, it's somehow important, as, exactly as you were saying, to be able to see this bad thing not as something that what should be shunned or pushed away or rejected, but as something that is actually integral to, to what one has become. Right, right. That makes a ton of sense. All right, so Nick, we've got about four minutes. Tell me your, so what do we do? Mere human beings, what's your advice for us to function better in the world, make better decisions? Uh, any advice you have? Yeah, I think the, the first thing I'd say is that we should embrace the fact that we're, we're highly flexible, always improvising. So we shouldn't be too set in our ways. We shouldn't be too sure that, um, that what we think now is what we'll always think, and the way we do things now is the way we'll always do things, or the way we always should do things. So we should both allow that, um, we should allow ourselves to be flexible to change, to reconsider, to reimagine. That's one thing. And relatedly to that, we should allow. Um, other people to change around us, including, for example, um, uh, uh, people who are senior to us. I think something that we often actually rather like when it happens, but uh, is when when uh, when people who are 
uh, working with us, perhaps very senior people, started to change their opinion on something. They thought this was a good idea, but it doesn't seem to be such a good idea. And now they say, oh, well, I thought that was going to work, but it didn't work. And that sort of revision, I think if you're the person in control, you're the manager, you feel very vulnerable at that point. But it, from the perspective of continual improvisation, we're all improvising. We're all floundering. It's fine to be the manager saying, well, obviously, as you can see, you know, I thought this was a good idea and it's not working out as I expected. What shall we do? Um, rather than trying to defend, thinking, well, I've set my stall out. I must continue to be that person. So I think we should allow ourselves to be more flexible and be open with others, not limitlessly, and everything has to be taken in moderation, of course, but, but to some extent be open with, with other people about the fact that we are we are feeling our way. We're all always feeling our way. Um, I think one of the things that, particularly in the context of leadership, we, we can sometimes have is a mistaken perception that leaders should know all the answers. And, of course, all the research on leadership indicates that this is inevitably not the case. That good leaders often don't know all the answers. But what they are good at doing, and one of the crucial things they're good at doing, is, is being flexible, creative, evolving the answers, and helping build... Um, a, cons a, a consensus and a narrative which binds together the people that they're working with. So I think right. one of the things I'd certainly give as advice to, to leaders or prospective leaders is to think about this process of um, finding meaning and purpose and constru uh, constructing sense in a chaotic world is something that it's, it's always a matter of improvisation, even at the level of the organization. And the more one's comfortable with that oneself, um, that you know, one is flat. We're, we're all improvising. We're all trying our best, and we continually have Nick. to revise and change. But also that that's something we're one can to communicate to others. One doesn't have to. We don't okay. have to know all the answers, and we certainly don't. Thank you, Nick. My guest today is Nick Chatter. At Chatter, and the book, if you're interested, is The Mind Is Flat. And again, the notion is that we're always constructing our stories and our interpretations, and there's good things in that. Join us next week for another episode. Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.